The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That's gracebible.faith. We're continuing our study of the biblical covenants. For those of you that are guests with us, uh, we'll kind of review what we've been doing all through our study, but we're basically starting with the Noahic covenant and working through all the explicit biblical covenants in the Old Testament. We're at a point now where we're going to do the new covenant this morning. So as far as a covenant timeline, I'm not putting dates on this just to make it even more simple, but at least you see the sequence and you see how uh, they relate to each other as far as when they appear in time. The first is the Abrahamic covenant. It's the most foundational, as we've said. Uh, God made a covenant with Abraham to give him a multitude of descendants, to give him a particular piece of real estate for those descendants to dwell in to bless him and bless the descendants that came from him and through that nation, through that people, to be a blessing to all the other nations of the earth. After the Abrahamic covenant comes what? Mosaic covenant. Mosaic covenant was after the nation had been multiplied in the land of Egypt and after God had demonstrated his power by bringing the plagues upon the Egyptians, refuting their gods in the process and demonstrating that he was the one true God and he was the God of Israel, he brought them down to Sinai. He entered into covenant with them. And of course, the, the essence of that covenant is given to us in Exodus 19, 4 through 6. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, now how I bore you on eagles' wings. That was a way of demonstrating his care and his love for them as he brought them through the wilderness and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The Mosaic covenant spelled out in great detail the relationship between God and his people. It was a constitution for the nation of sorts. And if they were obedient, if they were faithful to obey the commands and statutes and ordinances that God gave them, he would bless them. In fact, it was the means by which the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant, the promised blessings, would be given to the nation of Israel. On the other hand, if they were disobedient, what would happen? It would be cursed. There would be curses that were brought upon them as a people. And the ultimate curse would be what? being taken out of the land. Now, even before we get out of the book of Deuteronomy, or earlier than that, even as we get to Leviticus 26, we're anticipating which one of those is going to happen. Are they going to be obedient and be blessed? No. I mean, Moses teaches them a song right before he dies that shows that they're going to be disobedient. Uh, and what is God's response to that? Say, I'm done. I'll start over with another nation. No, he's faithful to them, and he promises that he's going to be faithful to them, and ultimately they will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, even though through their history they've really not fulfilled that role the way they were designed to. Within the Pentateuch and after the Mosaic Covenant comes the Priestly Covenant. The Priestly Covenant came about as a result of Phineas and uh, his zeal for the Lord running a spear through the man who had brought a Midianite woman into his tent in the midst of a flagrant idolatry that not only that man was participating in, but others in the country, in the nation. Uh, and the priestly covenant 
guaranteed to Phineas uh, a priestly line, even all the way down to the Millennial Kingdom, where the sons of Zadok, who are descendants of Phineas, end up being the ones that are actually minister the holy things to the Lord. After the Mosaic Covenant, uh, we have what we call the Deuteronomic Covenant. And if you're reading about these covenants in a book or something else, this covenant itself might not be mentioned. Our main point in kind of teaching about this was that to see that the book of Deuteronomy itself is a covenant document. It's actually just a renewal of the Mosaic Covenant with that second generation because the first one had to die out in the wilderness. But it is a renewal of the Mosaic Covenant with that generation as they're about to enter the promised land. They're right there in the plains of Moab. They're on the brink of entering into the promised land. And God renews that covenant with them through Moses and through the book of Deuteronomy. Now, several hundred years later, we have the Davidic covenant. Uh, Davidic covenant, we've already passed through the period of the judges, which was not a great time in Israel's history. Uh, they requested a king like other, the other nations that they had around them and they wanted a king that would go into battle for them like those other nations not the greatest of reasons to request a king but we see that kings and kingdom were part of God's plan from the very beginning who was the first king that they chose Saul and they didn't choose him just them God himself chose him as uh, their king but Saul didn't do so well he uh, wasn't fully devoted to the Lord and the kingdom was taken away from him. David is the next king, and God makes a covenant with David, because he's a man after his own heart, that his descendant, his son, will be the one to build the temple. And if that son sinned, and by implication if any of his descendants sinned, God would discipline them, but he would not take away the kingdom from them. And in essence, to summarize, David would never lack a man to sit upon the throne. So we have a series of kings uh, that remember the kingdom splits after Solomon into northern and southern kingdoms. And uh, by and large, the nation is unfaithful. And they end up being taken into exile, uh, the northern kingdom in 722 B.C. by Assyria, the southern kingdom in 586 B.C. by the nation of Babylon. Um, so that prompts the need for the new covenant. That's what we're going to be looking at today. Anybody know how many times the phrase New Covenant appears in the Old Testament? Once. Just once. Now the idea of what's spelled out in that one passage, and that's the one that we'll be focused on this morning, that concept appears in other places, but the phrase New Covenant itself only appears once in Jeremiah 31. <clears throat> So the setting of the New Covenant, uh, it is revealed in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. It has to be interpreted both in light of its own historical context, that is, where they are as a nation at that point in time, and in light of the biblical covenants that preceded it. That's why I went through that timeline. It's very important to understand that the New Covenant is in that flow of the other covenants that preceded it. Conversely, it's very important not to think this way. Old Covenant, Old Testament, New Covenant, New Testament. That's not the way it works. Uh, we've talked about this before. We don't think of the, uh, with the coming of Christ, we have a New Covenant, therefore the Old Testament is obsolete. 
That just doesn't work. It doesn't work with the totality of the plan of God. Uh, obviously, the coming of Christ was very significant. But the real dividing line is at Pentecost, later in the New Testament, when we are going through the events of the Gospels, we're still under an Old Testament economy. But I hope you see by now, and I hope you see even better as we get through the study of the New Covenant, that it's vital to see it as connected with the covenants that preceded it. And we'll, we'll keep going and, and talking about that as we go. Just to continue with the setting of the new covenant, both Israel and her kings have failed to keep covenant with Yahweh, as we've talked about. God has tried and tried and sent prophets to call the nation back to covenant loyalty, but the nation has not heeded their message. And as a result, God did exactly what he said he was going to do very early in his plan. Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28, he took the people out of the land. He subjugated them to those two foreign powers, Assyria and Babylon. Now, Jeremiah is ministering to the southern kingdom, as most of the latter prophets are. They might know the three prophets that ministered to the northern kingdom. One of them is uh, kind of a different kind of prophet, but Jonah is one, Amos, and Hosea. You think of the name Yah, for short for Yahweh, and you think of J being a Y, you can remember them that way. Jonah, Amos, Hosea. Everybody else is ministering to the southern kingdom. And as we've seen, the southern kingdom is the one that has the promise of David not lacking a man to sit upon the throne. Jeremiah's ministry spanned from 627 to 574 B.C. So he's ministering and prophesying the exile itself. And then he's writing during the exile and even uh, right up to the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. In the earlier part of Jeremiah's book, he's laying out Ju Judah's guilt. He's explaining to the nation why they're going to be taken into exile. Uh, these chapters, well, as we get to chapters 30 through 33, there's a change in tone. And this is the way it is often in the latter prophets. A lot of times it's calling the nation back to loyalty. It's convicting them of their sin. It's even talking about exile, but always at the end, a hope a future hope of restoration, just like Deuteronomy 30 does. But in these chapters, in 30 through 33, we have themes that are repeated several times over the course of those four chapters, God's great love for Israel. In chapter 32, we have a review of their unfaithfulness and their idolatry. We have a very explicit prediction of their restoration, both to Yahweh himself and to the land. And with that restoration, all the attendant blessings that would come with that, blessings that were originally spelled out in the Mosaic Covenant. We have a description of the punishment of other nations, which is also described earlier in the Pentateuch. And all these things will take place during what the Old Testament prophets call the Day of the Lord. We would call it also the Great Tribulation Period. Uh, the day of the Lord is not just a 24-hour day, but it's a period of time based on a day that has both elements of darkness and light. You know, in the Hebrew, the Hebrew idea of the day, it starts, a new day starts in the evening. Ours starts in the morning. But it starts in the evening time as the sun goes down and the, you have the darkness first. In the latter part of the day, you, you have light. 
Well, it's the same way with the day of the Lord. You're going to have a time of great darkness and tribulation and distress, a time that lasts seven years, distress not only for the nation of Israel but also for the other nations, and then that's followed by a time of light in the millennial kingdom when Christ returns and reigns on the earth for a thousand years. So to summarize, again, the, the promises in these chapters and the kind of the content of the chapters, despite Israel's unfaithfulness, God will not forsake them. After they are purged, and they will be purged, that's one of the purposes of the, the day of the Lord, there'll be a point at which the whole nation is regenerated and sent to a place of protection until the end of the tribulation period. So after they're purged, he'll restore them to the land. He'll fulfill his covenant promises, again, promises of blessing that were originally given in the Mosaic Covenant. A key part of this restoration is the passage, the one passage that mentions the new covenant in Jeremiah 31 to 34. Sorry, Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. So let's read that passage first, and then we'll make some points from it. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That's the Mosaic covenant. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. So the time of the covenant, we talked about this some, I think, last week as well. Days are coming or after those days. That's a phrase that whenever you see it in the latter prophets, you need to think end time, uh, very end time, consummation of God's program with the nation of Israel. And as we've said before, you could also equate it to the day of the Lord. The new covenant will bring a radical change in the economy or the dispensation, we can say, the way that God deals with people on the earth. Now, we firmly believe that we as the church will be taken out of the world before the day of the Lord comes. In fact, the rapture is the event that starts the day of the Lord, that seven-year period of tribulation. And things will be very different during the tribulation period and, and during the millennial kingdom to follow. The parties of the covenant... God, obviously, the Lord himself, he's the one that has initiated and set the terms for all these covenants. You talk about non-negotiable. Uh, these aren't things that God worked out with different individuals or with the nation of Israel. He's the one that sets the terms, and Israel is the one that submits. But notice there's the mention of the house of Israel and the house of Judah, and that's so because at this time the, those had been split, and the covenant is with both, indicating that they'll be reunited as one people, one kingdom, once again. The character of the covenant is described as being different from the covenant which the Lord made with the house of Israel as he brought them out of the land of Egypt. So obviously it's different, but what is the difference? I'm going to let that be a real question for a minute. What is the difference 
between the new covenant and the Mosaic covenant in the context that we've set up? And are there any similarities? Well, the similarities are that um, the sin is covered up by the shedding of blood. That's where you have that in both. Okay. But um, the difference, I believe, is that the when Christ is crucified, it's done once and for all, whereas before you had to just keep doing it and doing it and doing it over and over again. Okay, so that is true. <clears throat> Mosaic Covenant required multiple sacrifices over and over again, and Christ's sacrifice was a once-for-all sacrifice that uh, dealt with sin in a more complete way than any of the other previous sacrifices. However, when we get to the Millennial Kingdom, where the New Covenant has kicked in and the economy has changed, we still have sacrifices, right? Uh, so we have to account for that. Well, I know we've talked about that some already. Okay, what does that mean? What law? Mosaic. The Mosaic law. So this is not a doing away with the Mosaic covenant. Now, what we have to be careful about is, as you read Paul's letters, oftentimes it does sound like, hey, the law's done away with. And that's true for us. We're not under the law. Never have been as the church. But the law he's talking about here is the law that was given in the Mosaic Covenant. After all, isn't that what God has been trying to get them to obey all this time through his dealings with them through the Old Testament? So I would argue that the difference is largely one of enablement. Let me explain what I mean by that. As David said, the law will be written not on tablets of stone, but on their hearts. That is, it will be internalized to the degree that their inclination will be to obey that law, which is very different from what their inclination has been through their Old Testament history. It has been to rebel against it and not obey it. So instead of a nature to rebel, uh, the nature of each individual in the nation will be to obey God's law. An exhortation to know the Lord will no longer be necessary because the whole nation will be obedient. Again, you've always had a righteous remnant that was inclined to obey the law, not perfectly, uh, and it won't be absolute perfect obedience even in the millennial kingdom. There will still be sin there, but it will be uh, dealt with. It will be repented of. Uh, it will be largely, the kingdom will largely be characterized by righteousness, very different from the previous kingdoms. But the whole nation will be regenerated. That's a huge difference in the Mosaic Covenant compared to the Mosaic Covenant. Can I ask you a question? Sure. Not yet. That's right. So that means they're saved, and they have a they have a conscience that, that we wish we all had that operated well for us. Well, they have the indwelling spirit too yeah, at so that what time. We call it the conscience, that sense that of right and wrong, and what we should do and shouldn't do, and what should I say right now? There, and I should feel bad about that, or I shouldn't feel. That's what we're talking about. That. So I think it's more than that because. I think all men have a conscience. Yeah, when, it, doesn't work well. it depends on how it's fed, right? Yeah. yeah. I think the difference for Israel when they're regenerated is, it's like for us when we're regenerated, it's more than just conscience. It's a new ability because of the spirit dwelling in us, not only to detect right and wrong, but to resist sin. So when I say, what I'm talking about is another outpouring of the Spirit during the tribulation period for the nation of Israel. It's 
It's already happened for us in the church. But I think like other things, you know, there's certain things that we get that are expressed in the new covenant. We get them in the church ahead of Israel. And I think this happens during the tribulation period. Their eyes are opened at that point to recognize that Jesus is their Messiah. Obviously, the, the bulk of the nation of Israel doesn't recognize that right now. So I, to answer your question, I think the, um, the main thing that changes is that they receive Christ as their Messiah and they get the Spirit the same way that we in the church have. So they would be born and they would grow up a little bit and they would grow up in a godly family and they would receive Christ as Lord and Savior at some point. So, and they, we can, they could all count on that happening. Well, let's think about it this way. The nation itself that's regenerated is this is before you get to the millennial kingdom, and they're they're regenerated as a people during the tribulation. As that nation passes into the kingdom, yes, there are people that are born to them. Those children are raised in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. The people can count on those Jewish children being saved. I believe so. I believe there's okay. I believe there the whole nation is saved from that point forward, and. Christ is on the earth at that point. So they, you know, it's different for, than it is for us. We've not seen Christ, but we love him. And we love him because of the work that God has done in our hearts to open our minds to see who he is. So there's similarity there, but Christ is actually on the earth reigning at that point. So as these new little ones are born, they're growing up in the environment of knowing the Lord and I think truly knowing him. But only Jewish children. No. It's not a promise to so I don't think there's a promise here. I do think there will be a lot of people that know the Lord during the millennial kingdom that are not Jewish. Obviously not all of them, right? Because at the end of the thousand years, there's another rebellion. But how wonderful to be a Jewish mom in those days. Absolutely. And dad. Yeah. How wonderful to be part of that millennial kingdom. We'll be there. That's right. We'll be there too, right? Uh, the We'll come back with Christ at the end of the tribulation period, and we will have our new bodies that are free even from the presence of sin, but there will also be people that are not yet got their resurrected bodies, and that will be the ones that end up multiplying and the nations uh, being rebuilt from them. So are you, based on that conversation, are you saying that <clears throat> the Jewish people that come into the millennial kingdom that are born during the millennial kingdom will not be part of that rebellion? They're all going to be saved as they, as, they, as they are born generation after generation? That's my conviction, yes. I think once he regenerates them as a people, the, the children and the, the whole nation remains regenerated. Now, we don't have a lot of scripture that speaks to that, but the, the, where it describes the rebellion in Revelation chapter 20, it speaks of the nations from the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. Uh, I think those are, are all Gentile nations. Well, all of the ones that exist at that point in time. I think the United States are probably part of that as well. If, we, if, we're, if we're even around. Well, it will. There's, there is likely. There's, obviously, there's even going to be topographical changes in the nation of Israel, and the nations could certainly change over the course of the tribulation period. Okay, let's keep going. Recall that even before the people entered the promised land, Moses predicted that they would be exiled for their disobedience, like we've talked about. 
but that the Lord would subsequently restore them, circumcising their hearts so that they might truly love him. And Kathleen, this again is getting to your question. What's interesting to me, before we read Deuteronomy 31 through 10, we need to read Deuteronomy 29, 2 through 4. Again, this is also toward the end of Moses' life, very much toward the end of the book of Deuteronomy. Here's what he says. Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You've seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and all his servants and all his land, the great trials which your eyes have seen, those great signs and wonders. Yet to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. And that's part of the explanation for why Israel has not been uh, faithful up to this point in time. And you start getting into that point, the sovereignty of God on the one hand and the responsibility of man on the other, it's very hard to sort out. But I think it's important to recognize that the, the nation as a whole, the heart of the nation has not been circumcised. And then we get to Deuteronomy 30, 1 through 10. I know we've read this before. I just want to read it again because I want you to see the connection with what Jeremiah's talking about in his book, chapter 31, and what was long anticipated early in the Bible in Deuteronomy 30. So it shall be when all these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which he spelled out back in chapter 28, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all nations where the Lord your God has banished you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart, and soul, according to all that I command you today, and that's how we know he's talking about the same law, you and your sons, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord God will gather you, and from there he will bring you back. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. And he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants. So that's again where we see that the descendants have circumcised hearts as well. To love the, the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, in order that you may live. <clears throat> and the Lord your God will inflict all these curses on your enemies. And on those who hate you, who persecuted you, that's the other nations. You shall again obey the Lord and observe all his commandments, which I command you today. Then the Lord your God will prosper you abundantly in all the work of your hand, in the offspring of your body, and the offspring of your cattle, and the produce of your ground. For the Lord will again rejoice over you for good, just as he rejoiced over your fathers. If you obey the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes, which are written in this book of the law, if you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. So again, we talked about this too, but there was this promise in the Mosaic Covenant, blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. There was obviously an anticipation that they would fail, and they did. And then there was an anticipation of restoration after failure. And that's what we're seeing in the New Covenant and in the Millennial Kingdom. <clears throat> so though the New Covenant is distinct from the Mosaic Covenant, it is different. It's, an, it's a separate covenant. The two are also inextricably bound together. And I want to provide you a quote from C.F. Kyle of Kyle and Dalich fame. 
it thus appears that the difference between the Old and the New Covenants must be reduced to this, that what was commanded and applied to the heart in the Old is given to the New, and the New is but the completion of the Old Covenant. This is indeed the true relation between them, as is clearly shown by the fact that the essential element of the New Covenant, I will be their God and they shall be my people, was set forth as the object of the Old Covenant. Leviticus 26.12 says, I will also walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. Exodus 29.45, I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will be their God. So the essence of the new covenant is that all Israel, not just a remnant, will be God's people. He will be their God. This was the original objective of the Mosaic covenant. It will finally be realized through God's work of heart circumcision and internalization of the law of God in each individual Israelite so that the whole nation will truly be a kingdom priest and a holy nation. Now, I mentioned that the phrase new covenant only appears in Jeremiah 31. But Ezekiel 36 is talking about the same thing, just doesn't use that phrase. And I want to read that passage to you, Ezekiel 36, beginning in verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. So God is doing this for his own sake, for his own reputation. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord. Again, that was part of the object of the Mosaic Covenant. When I prove myself holy among you in their sight, for I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you, from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. That's that heart circumcision that Deuteronomy 30 speaks of. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you'll be careful to observe my ordinances and you will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers so that you will be my people and I will be your God. Moreover, I will save you from all your uncleanness. I will call for the grain and multiply it, and I will not bring a famine on you, and I will multiply the fruit of the tree and the produce of the field that you may not receive again the disgrace of famine among the nations. Obviously, those things didn't happen and have not happened yet in Israel's history. They didn't happen with the first coming of Christ They haven't happened even though Israel has been reconstituted as a nation in our own day, right? They came back, reconstituted as a nation in 1948. They continue as a nation today. But they're not in a place where they don't fear their enemies. They're not in a place where they're having the kind of productivity that is described by the prophets. And most importantly, they're now preserved in unbelief. They don't even know their own Messiah right now. As a people, not to say that individual Jews don't know him, but as a people, they don't. God will forgive the sins of the people. They will be loyal to him forever. And then in verses 35 through 37 of Jeremiah 31, which come right after the verses that we read earlier, describing the covenant itself, 
It says this. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will also cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. The implication being that you can't measure those things and that the fixed order of the day is an ironclad guarantee that he's going to do these things that he's promised and fulfill the new covenant. Just as these things never cease to exist, so Israel will never cease to exist as a nation and a chosen people before God. And that runs all the way through the Old Testament. <clears throat> we talked about the necessity of seeing how these covenants relate to one another, how they're linked together. The Mosaic Covenant is linked to the Abrahamic Covenant. Exodus 6, 2 says, God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord, and I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. But to, by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they sojourned. And furthermore, I've heard the groaning of the sons of Israel because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. That is the covenant he made with Abraham. Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God. You shall know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. And then in Deuteronomy 7, The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you were the fewest of all people, so they weren't chosen based on their own merits by any stretch. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, again, reference to the Abrahamic covenant, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery and from the house of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant, his loving kindness is to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments. <clears throat> we have a link between the Davidic covenant and the Mosaic covenant, 2 Samuel 7. This is in the section right after that covenant is made between Yahweh and David. For this reason thou art great, O Lord God, for there is none like thee, and there is no God besides thee, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And what one nation on the earth is like thy people Israel, whom God went to redeem for himself as a people, and to make a name for himself? That's that concept of Israel being God's chosen nation as a witness nation to all the others of the earth, and to, to do a great thing for thee and awesome things for thy land, before thy people whom thou hast redeemed for thyself from Egypt, from nations and their gods. For thou hast established for thyself thy people Israel as thine own people forever, and thou, O Lord, hast become their God. 
We've already read these passages, but that's where the new covenant, as we saw, is linked to the Mosaic covenant. It is the law from the Mosaic covenant that's written on the hearts of the people. New covenant is linked to the Mosaic and the Davidic covenant in Ezekiel 34. Then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David. He will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God. My servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. I'll make a covenant of peace with them and eliminate harmful beasts from the land so that they may live securely in the wilderness and, sh and sleep in the woods. I will make them in the places around my hill a blessing. So, again, hear that same kind of language that the promise of blessing back in the Mosaic Covenant. I will cause showers to come down in their season. There will be showers of blessing. The tree of the field will yield its fruit. The earth will yield its increase. They'll be secure on their land. Then they will know that I am the Lord when I have broken the bars of their yoke, that is, taking them out of captivity and taking them out of subjugation to other nations, and have delivered them from the hand of those who enslave them. We also read this passage earlier. We won't read it again, but you can see how the new covenant is linked to the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenants in Ezekiel 36. So I want to leave you with uh, a diagram. Well, I want to read this quote first and then give you a diagram. This is from Paul House's book, Old Testament Theology. I've recommended this book before. I'm reading through it again right now alongside reading through the Old Testament. It only covers... Uh, Genesis to Malachi it is an excellent resource. He just does a really good job of seeing how later revelation builds on earlier revelation and making those what he calls canonical synthesis to, to see the connections. Jeremiah's vision for renewal, for renewal corresponds with the more comprehensive statements in Isaiah, Isaiah's prophecy. The earlier prophet, and he's talking about Isaiah, merges the Davidic, Mosaic, and Abrahamic covenants in the work of the servant. You'll recall that Isaiah's book has four servant songs at the end of it. Jeremiah locates the fulfillment of these agreements at the initiation of the new covenant. When the new covenant comes into effect, the others will be gathered into it, fulfilled and explained by it. Both prophets believe that a new age will come when a cleansed, faithful people of God, the nation of Israel, inherit a glorious city in which they worship the Lord under the leadership of a Davidic descendant. God's law will be obeyed. God will rule over subjects from Israel and the nations. So here, here's my graphic. Abrahamic promised land, seed, and blessing. It was the foundation of all the other covenants. Mosaic Covenant was made with the people as a nation. It spelled out what their responsibilities were. It promised blessing for obedience, curses for disobedience. It really defined the relationship between their new king, Yahweh, and themselves. Davidic Covenant defined even further the relationship. Now that they were going to have a king, he was going to be God's son, sitting on God's throne, ruling on God's behalf, from the city of Jerusalem. So the Davidic covenant defined both the king and the kingdom as far as it always coming through the line of David forever. And then the new covenant uh, promised an enablement for them to obey in a way that they never had before by circumcision of the heart, by the law being written on their hearts, 
and accomplished by the forgiveness of their sins. It's not spelled out in Jeremiah 31 how that happens. We know through later revelation that it happens through the sacrifice of God's own Son, Jesus Christ. What the New Covenant does is bring all these together and fulfill them. And what is the time of that fulfillment? Is it happening now in the church age? Okay, and we'll talk about that the next two Sundays. We're going to talk about our relationship to this new covenant, and that is the truth. We get some of the benefits of the covenant extended to us ahead of time. We don't fulfill the covenant, right, because the covenant is made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. What is their present status? Temporarily set aside, hardened, until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. So... When does all this happen that I've put in red here? Millennial Kingdom. It can only happen after the king's come, king comes back, Jesus Christ, after the tribulation period, and during that thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. I love that song that we sang today because it talks about this. It's just a great song anyway. But I think Isaac Watts was the author of that one. and uh, It's got a lot of good theology in it. But that, what we've covered today is the one passage in the Old Testament that speaks of the New Covenant. Again, the concept of a restoration of the nation of Israel goes all the way back to Leviticus 26. But explicit mention of the New Covenant only appears there in Jeremiah 31. What we'll look at over the next two weeks is the New Covenant in the New Testament. And we're going to divide that up into two parts. Obviously, we have references to the New Covenant when the Lord establishes the Lord's Supper at the end of the Passover with the Twelve. He speaks about His blood being the blood of the New Covenant. We have a reference in 1 Corinthians 11 where Paul is referring back to that night as we celebrate the Lord's table together. We have a reference in 2 Corinthians 3 when Paul says he's a minister of the New Covenant. That'll be the hardest one in my estimation, but we'll have to talk about that. And then we have three different references in the book of Hebrews that speak about the new covenant. So we'll, we'll do half of those next Sunday, and then we'll finish up with uh, references to Hebrews, especially they'll get their own Sunday, uh, the following Sunday. Any questions? Anything we covered this morning? Um, with the law written on their hearts, is that similar to how we have the Holy Spirit now, or is that something totally different? Because we still struggle, you know, with sin. Um, will they struggle with sin in a similar way as like a mature Christian, or will it be something different? So they will be similar to us in that they'll have an indwelling spirit and a circumcised heart the way that we do through the new birth today. I think they will still sin. Otherwise, they wouldn't have a need for sacrifices, uh, and they won't be yet in their glorified bodies in the millennial kingdom. So they'll have an enablement not to sin uh, in a way that they didn't have before. And I think they'll still have to struggle. Now, once you get to the new heavens and new earth, everybody has regenerated bodies at that point, and there's, there's no sin nature in anybody who's part of God's family. So we could imagine it, like, if we imagined a nation full of genuine Christians, that's what it would be like. Of what kind of Christians? Like genuine Christians. Genuine Christians, yes. Genuine Christians. So that's what the nation of Israel will be. That's right. That's right.
And again, you'll have other people that are part of the millennial kingdom that will sin and that ultimately will prove themselves at the end that they weren't genuine followers of Christ. But Christ says he'll rule the nations with a rod of iron. Justice will, justice will prevail. Righteousness, well, justice will be meted out speedily in a way that it's not done today. And the, it will largely be characterized by righteousness and peace. doesn't mean that sin's completely done away with at that point because you still have death even during the millennial kingdom. But all that eventually gets completely done away with in new heavens, new earth. Let me get Kathleen and then Andre. I have trouble understanding how people who live in the millennial kingdom, when they're surrounded by people in their glorified bodies, cannot understand what is going on. I mean, I, under, I know that Jesus walked the earth and stuff like that, but they never saw him in his glorified body like the three apostles did. Right. But these people are going to see uh, the, the saints in their glorified bodies walking amidst them. And Christ himself. And, and Christ himself, I, right. And how, how, can they, how can they still... Well, let me ask you a question that relates to that. How could Adam and Eve, in a perfect setting, uh, without a sin nature at that point, sin? I mean, they, they had it all. They were deceived. They were deceived. Well, yeah, but is okay. it, isn't Satan going to be bound for that thousand years? But when does the rebellion happen? It's after he's loosed. So, yes, they are, Satan is bound during a thousand years. I think that facilitates the rule of the kingdom. But it says that after he's released, then he goes out and gathers all these people. That's right. And, and brings one final rebellion. I think it speaks to the depravity of man. You make a good point in that, you know, it's not his environment ultimately that causes him to do what he does. It's his own nature. Yes, Kathleen. Yeah, I. Okay, that that is a question though. Is it? So, I don't want to dimension anyway what we enjoy here in our church, and I obviously there's other churches that uh, where God's word is preached faithfully and the Christ is exalted, and there's that kind of peace. It's a taste. That's a good way to say it because there's trouble in churches too, right? I mean. Those letters that we read about in the New Testament, the earliest church on, they had difficulties amongst themselves. There were conflicts and quarrels among them. Uh, it, that's a good question. I mean, we're not given a lot of information about that. The difference will be, it'll be on a worldwide scale. You won't have war. So to me, the Millennial Kingdom will be much better than what we enjoy now. Because there'll be so much, you know, the curse won't be, have completely been done away with, but you've got Christ on the earth ruling. You've got a witness nation that's doing what they're supposed to do. 
on a much larger scale, you've got righteousness and peace all over the world. Now, will there be sin? Sure. Uh, the, the, there'll be sacrifices that are made for that. And there'll be, I don't know, you know I don't know wh what the nature of that sin will be exactly. Yes. Some of our descendants won't yet be saved or will not be saved, but we'll be there and we'll have we'll have a stabilizing we'll have stabilizing opportunities and stuff that we have like in our church. Well I mean there's like it we get a, a small taste of it. Yeah, I, I would say it's a very small. Yeah, in, in, in many churches it, it, it's it's not that way. We actually get a good taste of how Christians are trying to help. Um, because yep. the problems will be obvious and Christian committees will be trying to deal with them. But even we will be very different in the millennial kingdom, right? Because we'll be in glorified bodies at that point. We'll be ruling and reigning with Christ. And it'll be very different from the way it is now. And I think much better. But and I again, I... Question. The, um, Jesus returning and dealing with everything. Do you call that an interval or do you call that now we're setting up the new covenant. So I would argue that the new covenant kicks in for Israel at the point during the tribulation where the Spirit is poured out on them and they are regenerated as a people. And then they call upon Jesus to return. No, that's, this is actually... Well, I that's a good question. I don't know if they're calling upon Him to return, but He does return at the end of that he period. Well, I think it's phrased slightly different than that. Uh, he says he won't come. I know what you're talking about. But basically he's saying he, they won't see him again until they call upon the name of the Lord. So I think that's more a reference to that being at the end of the tribulation period. and Realizing that he was the Messiah. That's right. That's what I mean. So yes. Like they're saying come back. They're saying, okay. Yes. You know, that's right. We did. Exactly. And then he returned. So that's when you think the new covenant begins, even though we see a lot of other people in the world who's conquering and all that kind of stuff. That's when it begins? Well, the newer, I mean, the, the revitalized earth. I think it begins in the millennial kingdom as far as the things that we see spelled out in Jeremiah 31. But we have to keep in mind, and this is what we'll talk about over the next few Sundays, that it's already been, uh, the blood of the covenant has already been offered or sacrificed in Christ. That's the basis of all that's described in Jeremiah 31. And as we said, the church gets in on the benefits of that because we embrace Christ and we embrace his sacrifice. We believe in it. So we get things ahead of time like the forgiveness of sin, the indwelling of the spirit, reconciliation with God. But we we're not fulfilling Jeremiah 31 the way that it will be fulfilled in the future. But we got to live now in view of what we know is coming. We know we get to do that, and because we recognize Christ as the Messiah, we live now differently than somebody that doesn't recognize him. Okay, so here's my big question. When they have the law written on their we don't really have it written on our heart now. We have to study and learn. And then the very act of trying to learn for the right reasons and whatnot affects our spiritual growth and everything. But we don't, 
we, we have to, and we can lose it. Like, we can learn a lot of stuff and then decide to slip into sin, and, right? Whereas they won't. Well, first, the law is not written on our hearts because we're not under the law. And second, yeah, I just think that's a way of uh, phrasing the, the way that their hearts are changed. And, and the law, again, their inclination being to obey the law. Our inclination as believers today is to obey Christ, right? We don't do it perfectly. But part of the regener work, regenerating work of the Spirit in our hearts is to give us a desire to obey that wasn't there before. Right. Okay. And I think that's the main thrust of was talked about in Jeremiah 31. For them, the law is the thing that guides them. It is the thing that has defined their relationship with God from the get-go for them as a nation. So is the Mosaic law and the, Mosaic and the law of Christ on our hearts? I think it's different. They're different? Yes. Will they have the law of Christ on their hearts too? I think they will love Christ because they'll recognize him as the long-awaited Messiah. And I think it's the Mosaic law that's talked about, though, in Jeremiah 31. So I, I, I don't know if you could say they had the law of Christ written on their hearts, but they will love him. you're thinking the sacrifice, you think the whole law as a unit. Yes. And I'm thinking godly behavior. Yeah, I think when you read the law, both in Jeremiah 31 and Deuteronomy 30, it's Mosaic law. And, it, and that matches up with how the prophets describe the character of the kingdom. It's not without some changes, to be sure, but you still have the feast, you still have priests, you still have sacrifices, you still have a temple. All that stuff comes from really thinking in terms of that. Yeah, absolutely. Time. Just like they have in their whole history. But we don't. We don't. Okay. Thank you for your attention. We'll be praying for the ladies in the... Is it ladies' tea or ladies' brunch? I don't know. Brunch. brunch. <laughs> All right. Somebody asked me if you are going to have tea. <laughs> okay, tea can be part of the brunch. Yes. All right, let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, it is uh, exciting to think about what you've already done, uh, what you've done through the nation of Israel, what you've done through Christ, and to think about this future time that will be so much different from what we live in now. Uh, we have great blessing now by knowing Christ and and recognizing that the Bible is your word and that guides us in this life. And it's very different for us now than it is for an unbeliever. But as we think about what will it be like in the millennial kingdom, for us in glorified bodies even, just incredible to be able to rule and reign with Christ. And then to be in a world, in this world even, where there's no war uh, where the, the dominant things are peace and righteousness and justice, and with Christ himself ruling not, over, not only over Israel but also over the nations. We look forward to that day. We pray that it would have impact on the way that we live and walk today, that we would be faithful to you and all the things that you call us to do, that other people would see a really accurate represent, representation of Christ and the gospel in our lives, and that that would provide us an opportunity to talk to them about why we behave as we do and why we um, do the things that we do. Thank you for the time we've had together this morning. We do pray for the ladies' brunch that it would be 
a, a really good time of fellowship. And we just pray now that you'd go with us and help us as we, as you put us in the different places that you have us through the week. Help us to honor you from our hearts and to love you with singular devotion and to demonstrate that love through obedience to your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. <clears throat> Amen.